And a very good morning to you. We're live in London for Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, the Russia analyst Stephen Diel and the journalist and author Latika Book are in front of me going through the hefty Sunday papers. Stephen, a very good morning to you. Good what morning. have you spotted? Um, well, um, obviously the war in Ukraine rumbles on, which is occupying a lot of my time. Um, we have um, sex scandals in the British government, um, but that might not That's sound not new. That's not new, Stephen. It's not new, but it's news uh, this week. Um, and what I'm quite excited about is um, women's football is coming home. We have the Euros, the uh, Euro 2022 tournament, starting in England this week. It's going to be the biggest women's tournament ever. Thanks very much indeed. And uh, Letika, I'm assuming that you and I are buying tickets now to go and see... Absolutely, yeah. Emma. Lovely. We'll be going. Much more from both of them in a little while. And in a moment, Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, will be joining me from Murano. And Guy Delorny will have an update from the Croatian coast too. It's the 3rd of July, 2022, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. And a very good morning to you. Let's have a look at the headlines before we begin. The battle has intensified for Lysychansk, Ukraine's last bastion in the strategic eastern province of Luhansk. But both Russia and Ukraine claim to have control of the city. Israeli authorities claim to have shot down three Hezbollah drones heading towards an Israeli gas rig in a disputed area of the Mediterranean. Argentina's economic crisis has deepened following the resignation of the country's economic minister. The government is now facing its lowest approval rating since taking office in 2019, with inflation running above 60%. And more than a million people packed central London on Saturday for a record-breaking 50th anniversary Pride Parade. The three-hour-long parade was headed by veterans of the LGBT movement who took part in Britain's first Pride March in 1972. That's a look at the headlines. Now, before we begin with the panel, let us head to Murano in Zutirol. Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brille, is there for us. A very good morning to you, Tyler. Have you got your toes dipped in some beautiful deep blue waters in the swimming pool? <laughs> not not quite. I mean, you can probably hear the sound of a babbling brook in the background here, Emma, but good morning. Guten Morgen. Absolutely gorgeous morning here in Sutro. Not quite, no, no, actually just um, a little bit down the valley in a very nice town, a neighbouring town called Lana uh, at the, the very nice Villa Arnica this morning. And what takes you to Murano? Apart from the fact well, many that it's gorgeous. Things. Well, of course, yeah. and you've, uh, you've, of course, you've been and you've spent time and you've uh, done the mini monocle tour around this uh, part of northern Italy. Uh, but this time, uh, it was a monocle event, I would say, yet another official uh, start of summer party, because, of course, uh, you were uh, very much on hand on Wednesday evening in London, for our event there, and uh, this is the continental version, uh, which we had on, on Friday evening. There is an absolute joyful start to the summer season, isn't there, where you get the bunting up, you you don't mind the fact that it's supposed to be summer, but actually it feels like it's mid-March, especially in London, because of the, the, north, the northerly gusts, but people get together and decide that um, actually it is wonderful to be back together again. We're, I think we're still surprised that we can still do it in so many ways, that it's just joyful to have everybody there, and people always say yes to these gigs don't they they do <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it was um, a very packed street uh, i think um, maybe the odd guest there was probably a moment where we thought people would get uh, you know run down by a tractor or something because um, it is a rather narrow setup where we have our shop uh, in Obermeist uh, in Murano but at a great gathering people came from as far from you know as far away as Seattle uh, which is incredible because we we sent her a list to our 
our global subscriber base. And that's the wonderful thing as well, just people happen to be in the region. They might be in Venice or they could have been up in Munich. They say, okay, we'll take a little detour. Uh, we'll swing by. And uh, we, because they, of course, they want to uh, meet other readers. And as you said, uh, just gather together. What I find quite interesting about that neck of the woods as well is that you, like you just say, if you're in Venice, it's not so far. If you're in Munich, it's not so far. I mean, its identity reflects that, that you don't, you walk into a shop and you're never entirely sure whether you should say buongiorno or guten morgen. But you, but I love the fact that it is, it is so deeply accessible. How's, how's that reflected recently in the way that it's connected with the rest of the world? Well, that's a very good question because we, we got a, a rather, um, curious, joyful set of pictures on Friday afternoon because there was a new inaugural flight uh, between Zurich and Bolzano. So Bolzano Airport has not really been functioning as a proper civil airport for a while. Private aircraft can come in. The, the Italian Air Force keeps it open, but it's been a very hot topic for the region. Citroën uh, wants, like, of course, there are many other regions, wants to be sustainable. They don't want to talk, talk up maybe the people who are coming to visit from Seattle and and it is it's controversial because uh, they 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 sort of their catchment area as maybe no more than you know five or six hundred kilometers uh, from here. So they want people to be able to, of course, uh, get on a train um, or drive. Um, and this is the interesting thing because a lot of people are saying, well, you know, in many ways, probably more sustainable to have uh, the right type of aircraft flying in here rather than people driving, clogging up the roads, etc. Anyway. Um, the wonderful thing is Sky Alps is now connecting the region. So there are flights from London, Emma, which is uh, good news for you. I believe they're flying from Gatwick. Nice, peppy little Q400s that come down the valley. And it was interesting. We were watching the progress of some of our colleagues who were flying in. And it was also one of those days that you get you know, at, at this time of year where it was you know, mid-30s during the day. And then you see uh, the thunderstorm clouds start to build over the mountains. Uh, probably at that point, you don't want to be in a small, peppy little Canadian plane <laughs> flying through them. Um, but they managed to, of course, uh, dodge and weave through them and be landing. I mean, uh, you, I mean, I'd love to come over to, um, uh, you know, to fly into Bolzano. You'll have to get me to Gatwick first. But the, but the, what I find, I wonder what the the, the region actually thinks of that. This, because I remember, but for quite a while, you have been um, really pushing this by saying, look, it does need to open up. There's this amazing amount of opportunity, uh, and then somehow I'd, I slightly got the impression where people were like, don't tell anyone about this region. It's absolutely wonderful. Let's keep it to ourselves. Are people happy, however, that that Bolzano is finally? opening it, you know, dusting off the runway. Absolutely. I think that uh, the hotel here is definitely, I think that maybe the, the tourism people are a little bit conflicted about what aircraft mean uh, coming in. But uh, I, I spoke to a variety of, of hoteliers who were, of course, at, at our event. Uh, and they're, they're thrilled that there is this direct connection. And listen, it's not just about tourism as well, because this is a region which is full of amazing innovation, uh, whether it's in engineering companies, whether it's uh, you know, certainly businesses which are doing amazing things in agriculture, not to mention wine. So, of course, you have a business community that also needs to be connected you know, with the rest of the world. Um, and it is, it is a bit of a hike. Um, it's not the longest drive uh, to, to get down to Venice uh, or, or to Milan or up to Munich or to Innsbruck. Um, but nevertheless, it's not quite on your doorstep. And I think the, the, the fact is that this is existing infrastructure which is here, uh, which just had to be uh, of course, fired up again. 
Um, I want to get your thoughts on the on the status of aviation at the moment. It's making the headlines for all the wrong reasons at the minute. And if you look at today's Sunday Times, for example, it's talking about how passengers are suffering airline misery. Um, it also tags on the fact that the EasyJet executives are heading off to a nice little um, corporate jamboree in, in Mallorca this week. But the fact remains that I don't think I know anybody, myself included, who hasn't had their flight either cancelled or waylaid or hijacked by some sort of problem in the last couple of weeks and looking ahead to the summer. I mean, what does that bode for our for our travel plans? A couple of things. And I think before we even worry about um, yeah, our, our listeners and everyone has to suffer through uh, and try to climb over mountains of luggage and all of the things that we see going wrong um, at, at European airports, but also North American airports um, as well. There has to be, I think, a real discussion between government, airport authorities, airlines as well, uh, to get things, of course, fired up, moving in the right direction. Because right now, we just see a lot of finger pointing. Of course, in the UK, we see the government saying, well, this is a problem for the airlines. Um, in the airports, government doesn't have any, you know, really any role in this. You know, I, would, I would argue otherwise, because you have to remember that it was, of course, government who yeah, was, they were the ones who were imposing restrictions, of course, uh, on people coming in and out of the country. Of course, this led to a situation where staff had to be furloughed um, or you know, laid off. And this is, of course, what we're dealing with now. So um, I don't think it's probably a time for a, a jamboree down uh, in, in Mallorca for, for EasyJet, unless, of course, it's a jamboree, which is going to be one where they're going to get to grips uh, with how they, they and, of course, um, all of their competitors and peers uh, try, try to get out of this. Tyler Brulé, I think we may be coming back to you a little bit later in the programme, but if not, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from Murano. Uh, It's good to have you with us. Right, let's have a look at uh, the papers. I'm delighted to say that Stephen DL is is like grasping the Sunday Times, uh, eager to share its contents with us. I love the fact you're holding it like it's a sort of Roman announcement from a tablet, (laughs) because it does feel a little bit like that, isn't it? It's that rarity, that delicious treat you get when you actually find a newspaper nowadays. And find a newspaper that you can actually get a hold on because when you first pick it up, it's you know you feel I'd better do a bit of weight training. I remember the days when you know Sunday newspapers were like newspapers. It was a newspaper. It didn't have magazines and, and supplements and adverts and all this sort of thing. But anyway, it but, is quite um, lightweight though. I mean, when you look at that, actually, just have a look at the size of it. It's really slim now, isn't it? it the, the main paper, of course, now is slim because they put it in so many other bits and pieces. Um, but the just continuing what um, you were discussing with Tylee, uh, yeah, a frontline store, a front page story in the Sunday Times. No holiday hell for the EasyJet executives, um, uh, saying how they're going off on this uh, jolly to Mallorca, uh, and they won't have any problems with their luggage or the flight being delayed and so on. Um, just following up from what you were saying, Emma, a friend of mine was coming back from. Um, just from northern Italy, funnily enough, where Tyler is now, um, uh, last Saturday week. And um, they spent three hours on the plane on the tarmac before the flight was cancelled. Um, and eventually, instead of getting home at sort of nine o'clock on uh, Saturday evening, they got home at one o'clock on Monday morning. Hmm. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm currently travelling to sort of uh, box and cox for an imminent trip, which is kind of, which is one of those things that, you know, Flights are being cancelled arbitrarily, last minute. People are having to find extra expense, cancel plans. Because if something happens within 24 hours of you wanting to, to go, it, it can pretty much ruin the rest of your week, can't it? And not to mention, make a big, kick a big hole in your, in your piggy bank. I mean, Latika, what are you finding about this? You've been in Italy talking to Qantas, haven't you? 
Yes, I mean, very similar dynamics in Australia with, with what's going on with the aviation sector here. We have had an, a situation in Australia, of course, where the borders were shut in and out for two years. And Qantas has really, really failed to snap back well. And I've been writing stories probably about two months ago now where some of the first uh, holiday makers coming back to the UK, they were coming and their bags weren't making it. And they would get their bags once they'd arrived back in Australia. I mean, that's how farcical it was. So people were coming here for a week or 10 days, which is kind of an average-ish trip from from Sydney to Australia or or somewhere uh, from Australia to, to the UK, and just had no baggage to speak of. Now, I mean, first world problems, sure. But actually, some of the people I were talking to, they were older couples, they'd come, the weather wasn't quite what they were expecting, they needed to get warmer clothes than they were anticipating, Uh, they had particular charges for their cameras, you know, these people had delayed their lifetime holiday um, for two years already. It was a real downer and it was a real bummer. And the worst thing of all was that Qantas had no customer service to speak of. So they would call the hotline. I think one guy just did an experiment and was on hold for 11 hours or something. Uh, Um, Emails, no emails. There was no baggage ground stuff because, of course, all these staff were sacked during the pandemic. So it's very, very hard uh, or casualised to come back to the workforce and say, hey, we're ready for you now. And people have said, thanks, I've had a better offer or sod you. There is that sense, isn't there, that people aren't ready for this. And yeah. um, But how did we get to this stage where, I mean, surely after two years of pent-up desire to travel, everybody must have realised that this was going to be happening. But this is, you know, it's going, going back to what Tyler was saying a, a few moments ago, there's so much finger-pointing at the moment. The government saying you should have got this sorted. The airports, the governments and the and, and the airlines are not sitting down together and thinking actually what should we be doing about all this? No, well the Conservative government in Britain is very good at finger pointing about anything um, and just passing the buck. So um, we shouldn't be surprised about that. We have Grant Shapps who's supposed to be the Transport Secretary who seems to have no interest in transport. Um, so uh, that, that, that doesn't surprise me here. But you're absolutely right. In, instead of just wringing their hands and saying, oh, it's their fault, it's their fault. Why don't they actually get together? And, and of course, as Latika said, part of the problem is, you know, that so many people laid off and, and now don't want to come back. You know, well, you told me... And you can understand in one sense why airlines and, and airports laid people off because there was no travel and therefore they, had, they couldn't pay people. Um, and you can understand why the people who were laid off have gone and got other jobs. Um, but sh- something, surely they, they have to make some kind of inducement to try and get people to, back to do these jobs. I mean, what I, is Qantas' view on that? Yeah, I mean, this is really fascinating because uh, last week... I was in Rome. Um, Qantas, obviously Australia's national airliner, has launched its first direct flight between Perth and Rome. So continental Europe is now within reach of Australian travellers on a single flight. That's, I mean, that's that's huge. That's historic. That's amazing. That's innovative. Qantas is doing great stuff on long haul. Um, but it was kind of weird to see the CEO uh, having a jolly in Rome, <laughs> and notwithstanding that he's launching this flight, when actually the airline is under serious pressure and in big trouble at home and people are not satisfied with their basics being delivered. So it is a difficult look, I think, publicly to see airline executives going around like this, whether it's Australia, whether it's EasyJet, when passengers can't even get their their regular flight on time. And if you were to challenge him on this, what what's said? 
Well, I mean, Qantas, I mean, Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, is actually an, an excellent communicator and he's not shy of media. So he's been on the front foot about this. He's he's had a couple of things to say. One, Australia obviously went to the extreme, extreme lengths it went to during COVID. So it is very difficult to ask an airliner to snap back with the elasticity that it might have had two and a half years ago. Uh, workforce is extremely different. Now, he's also under pressure for casualising a lot of the workforce, outsourcing a lot of the workforce and sacking a lot of the workforce. Uh, that's not entirely the government's fault. They did have a generous furlough scheme in Australia as well. Um, he is also, there was a very, very hilarious moment at the start of when basically flying resumed in Australia where Alan Joyce came out and said that passengers weren't flying fit, you know, mass, match fit basically because all these queues at the airport were down to passengers not remembering that they had to get their liquids and gels sorted and that they had to take their laptops out. Now, I actually have experienced this coming back from Australia a couple of weeks ago and it did happen. So he is right, but you can imagine that went down like an absolute lead balloon uh, to see the CEO blaming passengers for, for Qantas's poor service. It is an interesting thing, isn't it, when you get people blaming your passengers for, for, for not getting their, their act together because it doesn't sort of really... Um, it, so, so this is opening a bigger question, isn't it? It's about customer service. And we're talking about you know, being told that you, you know, you book a plane, you pay your money for your plane and you assume that you're going to go to the airport and get on your plane. There's a lot to remember now when you get on your plane. You have to remember to take your shoes off and not be a terrorist. You have to remember your gels and your liquids and your vaccine passports and your passport and your... And it, and it is one of those things now that it has complicated things so much for the passenger. But the fact remains now is that we we have this recruitment issue, don't we? That And, and post-pandemic... Um, it's it's a big issue when it comes to skills and incentive to go. If you know, Latika's talking about you know, you know, outsourcing, sacking, goodness knows what. Who would want to go and work for an airline, Steve? Well, indeed, and and also because certainly in the UK, post pandemic, um, we actually have the lowest unemployment we've had for many years. There is the the the, the most jobs on offer in in all sorts of areas because of course hospitality is something that's been uh, desperately hit as well because. Pubs and restaurants and cafes had, uh, had to close, and so therefore people went and found other things to do. Um, so it, it's it's all part. Of, it is definitely part of a vicious circle that is post-pandemic. Um, but of course, in Britain, it's made even worse too by the fact that we left the European Union, and so therefore a lot of the jobs that um, in in things like fruit picking and so on, um, where they're desperately short of people because they're not getting the people from the European Union because it's now not so easy just to come in and come and work for the summer. And the pandemic and skills, I mean, how did that... I mean, you've got a big smile on your face. Yeah, you know, I, I, I just want to share this anecdote. You know, I had a... I, I guess not even midlife because I was very early 20s. So what is that? Kind of quarter life? You're not midlife, yeah. <laughs> yes. You're a long way off. <laughs> and, Little uh, spring chicken. And um, a big uh, unknown secret. Hey, scoop here for your listeners, Emma. Journalists are not paid very well. Um, and when I was, I was very, very young and trying to cut my teeth in the art of journalism, I nearly gave up because I was literally running up debt just trying to manage my overnight shifts. And I applied to be a, a Qantas flight attendant. And I got to round two of the personality kind of tests and all these scenarios they put you through to see if you're going to make it. And uh, sadly, I got the chop after round two. What was it that you, you did know, well I, in? And where was it? What I did they say that, you know, I sorry, sorry Miss Burke. don't know, Emma. We had to do a scenario where, and I'd worked in a lot of retail um, as a kid, of course. So I thought I'd 
absolutely ace the customer service. And we had this scenario where someone wanted to return a TV, but whatever I did was wrong. But I, I thought the customer was always right. Maybe maybe on an airline, customers are not always right. Maybe they're just <laughs> drunk and rowdy and you need to subdue them. I know exactly. I can tell exactly why. Having met you a few times now, Ladik, I know exactly why you didn't succeed. It's why I, having had a short spell in the British Army, realised I would never make a career of it. Because you and I are people, and maybe it's being a journalist, that's what does it. We ask the question, why, too often. Instead of just being given stupid orders and saying, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, I'll go and do it. Um, I, I, you, you wouldn't do that. You would ask the question, why? And Qantas obviously saw that and thought, no, no, she's going to be a troublemaker. So. I don't know. Someone said I would be very good as a first class um, uh, a cabin crew because I'm very good at telling people to sit down very quickly <laughs> because we're just about to go on air. I'm like, could you sit down now, please? And turn you your do it off. with such a beautiful demeanour, Emma. I think that exactly. was more the compliment. Would you like another glass of <laughs> yes. fizzy? Um, right, let's have a look at the rest of the papers. Uh, Stephen, what have you picked up today? Um, well, I mentioned earlier, and I appear to have bashed the government a couple of times already. This is not government bashing. You wouldn't this be is, the only one, Stephen. Let's not worry about this. I just find it rather ironic that a man called Chris Pincher... <laughs> Note the surname um, has uh, has had to step down from his post as deputy chief whip of the Conservative Party uh, for groping men in. And again, I find this very maybe it's my schoolboy sense of humour, but it, it, groping men in a private members club. <laughs> um, and it's just so it should be so bizarre, but unfortunately, it's not. We think, oh God, it's the Conservatives at it again, doing something weird. And the Sunday Telegraph leads on PM turned blind eye to sex pest warnings. Um, apparently. The, you know, people are now coming. Well, yeah, he did that to me before, um, uh, and uh, it just—it—it it, it just seems that this government cannot. Uh, cover itself in enough sleaze and bad stories and you know that we had the scandal about Boris Johnson um, breaking lockdown part you know by having parties at number 10 Downing Street when the rest of us weren't allowed to go and even say goodbye to our loved ones as they were dying and um, uh, and you know now you've got this um, conservative MP who goes to the Carlton Club which is a well-known club for conservatives in London and um getting so blind drunk, apparently he could hardly talk, but he could still grope other men. Um, and it, it just goes on. It reminds me very much, actually, of the 1990s. It's one of the advantages of getting older. You can think back and you can compare things to history. Um, in the mid-90s, when the Conservative Party had been in power for 15, 16, and ultimately 17 years till they got kicked out, and there were there were scandals then. There was the one about David Mellor. I tell this because I hate Chelsea Football Club. And David Mellor <laughs> was supposed to have um, had sex with a young woman wearing a Chelsea football shirt. Um, and the, the, you know these bizarre stories that come out. Uh, and it, it just seems that the Conservatives love to go around shooting themselves in the foot. Um, can I can I confess that when this latest scandal broke, I I didn't pay that much attention to it because the catalogue of what is happening is 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 sort of boring now dare I say it and it's probably not well, it was certainly not boring for the poor men who found themselves um at the as you know at the at the unwanted end of Mr Pinch's um uh, attentions but the fact remains that you know let's just think about what happened in the United Kingdom a couple of weeks ago there were by-elections in two constituencies that were held by the Conservatives. The two MPs had to step down, firstly because one of them was convicted of molesting a teenage boy and the other one was watching porn in the House of Commons. I mean, we are... How used to this are we now? I mean, this cannot be 
explained away as something that is just part of every workforce. Because, you know, how many MPs are there? 600 and something MPs. I mean, gosh, they're busy. Latika, how are you? How are you explaining this back to Australia? You know, we just had an election in Australia where the government changed, and we don't really have uh, sex pest scandals quite like the British in Australia. But one of the big themes in the Australian election was integrity, and you can kind of put that in inverted commas and ask what what that means. But we had a big surge of a, a new kind of third force vote in independent women MPs. And they ran on one of the three platforms was integrity in politics. Now, they were actually talking about a corruption uh, commission that they want established into Australian politics. And it strikes me that this integrity idea is something that Britain is really, really gasping for. Because I had the exact same reaction as you, Emma. Oh, another sex pest scandal. I mean, that is terrible. If you're getting to the point where there's so many of them, you can't even be bothered to avail yourself of the ins and outs of this, that really does say that the rot has well and truly set in around the government and that people will be just thinking of this government, which is really unfair for many of the hardworking MPs there, the majority of whom I'd say, um, is that they're all up to it. They all do this. Oh, this is what they're all involved in. And it's not the case. The other point I would actually add here, Emma, is that it's very, I think, heartening to see that these Me Tooisms are now coming out uh, surrounding gay men, because I have a lot of gay friends who work in politics, and they feel very, very vulnerable. Because now it's okay, and it's uh, lots of women have forged a path and empowered other women to come out and say, "No, this MP hassled me. No, this person groped me. No, I had a sexual relationship with this MP, but it was a, a very um, imbalanced relationship, and therefore it was wrong, and, and I want to expose that." That's a well-trodden path now, but for gay men they're actually extremely vulnerable because of the difficulties of being seen to out somebody uh, because this actually does go on far more than people think and there's a lot of it that's also, uh, I think, um, unfairly maligned to being part of gay culture. And talking a little bit about the fact that you're talking about this less than 24 hours since they were gearing up for the biggest Pride March ever seen in London when we had, we, I mean, they shut down London yesterday. I was on Pride March yesterday. And tell us what it was like. I it mean, was does fabulous. This do anything? But you have this say-do gap, don't you? You have this idea that now the United Kingdom has a million people on the streets of London, of its capital, celebrating everybody for who they are, regardless of, of, yeah. of what they what they love and who, what, what the, and who they love. Um, and yet we talk about this still behind closed doors. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually talking about this very issue with um, some of the people in the march yesterday. So Sydney is hosting World Pride next year and it's going to be a huge party. They expect around 1.1 million people there. Yeah, I can tell us of a little bit of ambition, like, thanks, London. We'll yeah, we'll take exactly, it from here. Exactly. Hold my beer. And so I was invited to, to, to join this march. Obviously, I'm not gay, but I do have a lot of friends who are gay. Um, in fact, I'd say nearly all my friends are gay. And they said to me as we walked through, I was absolutely stunned by how many people lined the streets of central London yesterday to watch a gay uh, pride parade. I was just stunned. And it was a beautiful atmosphere. If you watch any of the footage, you will just see giant smiles on everyone's faces. Everyone is so happy to be there and everyone is so happy to celebrate each other. But the thing that actually my gay friends said, both younger and older, was two observations. There was a huge demographic they noticed weren't there, men of a certain age who had clearly 
been succumbed to AIDS. And then you would see very young demographics with their families, which was just incredible. And then a lot of older people by themselves. And I just thought that really did tell the tale of where the gay rights movement has been and come and come. And honestly, just to see the various demographics there, people by themselves, people in groups, people with families, every single nationality you could dream of, all celebrating one thing. I just thought that was London at its best. Was it? And it was pretty London at its best this morning as well. Our studio manager, Nora, um, spotted some uh, some gentlemen in some sort of quite fitting, tightly fitting dresses this morning <laughs> on her way into work. And there was someone apparently asleep in the fountain outside Buckingham Palace. Oh, fabulous. And it's, and it's not that long since the Jubilee. So I quite, I love the way that, that uh, I love the flexibility of London. The fact that it can do that. Also, there was a big concert with Adele last night. So um, we have, I have a, a friend who flew over from Australia just for that concert. Really? Yes. She should have sat with me in the park. It was free. <laughs> and there, was, there was this wonderful feeling, though, that you had everybody from Pride and then you had all those dreadful tuk-tuks, which they sort of cover in furry <laughs> yes, stuff. Yes. And, and basically every single bit of road in central London was clogged up either with Pride revellers or hundreds of Adele wannabe women who looked like Adele but didn't sound like Adele but didn't seem to worry because they too had had a skinful and decided they were going to share their love with and all their songs with the rest of the world. I mean, London really did go bananas last night. So what you're saying, Emma, is that we're having a celebration of queens. (laughs) (laughs) On every single level. Well done, London. Uh, Stephen, you wanted to add to this. Well, I, uh, it, it does. I think it's wonderful that it says so much about London. And I, I, I stress to listeners, it says a lot about London and not um, the United Kingdom. Uh, I think it's very important to point out there are still some very, very backward parts of the United Kingdom when it comes to accepting people for who they are. Um, and it was interesting, you know, Latika was talking about the, the, the age differences. Um, well, as someone who's rather more senior and certainly the oldest person in this studio, um, you know, I personally have gone through a complete change because, of course, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, well, when I, it was only in the 60s that um, uh, sex between men was, was um, made legal. You know, it used to be illegal before that. Um, and so, you know, it was very much, we were very much taught, you know, oh, no, this is a bad thing, this is a bad thing. And, and actually, I found in, in my own wider family, um, we, we have gay men, we've had lesbian women. Um, and so f- I'm really pleased that I personally, through personal experience and also living in society and seeing the changes in society, have actually changed my whole view since when I was a young man. And I think it is great. It's wonderful. Um, I've even been along to my, uh, my my sons when my son was the youngest was still at school. And they, they actually, it's an all-boys school in London where they'd formed a an LGBT uh, society. And I went along to talk to them and, and explain to them. I said, look, you know, things have changed so much and I'm glad that I have. And actually... What what what's what is ultimately the most important thing in this life? It is loving and being loved, and who you love and how you love them is between you and that person. Um, and so you know why is it why has it become has it been such a big deal? And it's marvelous that at last you know people are waking up to this. But and I stress again, this is London. In London, anything goes. Uh, which is fantastic. And London is a wonderful city to live in. Um, but there are many other parts of the United Kingdom that um, uh, need a little uh, educating. A little bit of a you know, that's really interesting because we had a same-sex marriage vote in 
Australia, I think it was 2016 or 2017, so very recently. That and surprises me because it, it's been around for a good 20 oh, years here in the UK. It was a very fraught debate, let me assure you. And obviously, overwhelmingly, Australians said yes, um, because it's just not an issue. But um, one of the really interesting uh, demographics that, that got thrown up and exposed by that vote was that, yes, the cities all voted yes. The regions, actually, so country Australia actually had a really high yes vote, but the bit that was no was actually outer suburbs in Sydney, Melbourne, where there, were very, um, uh, there was a very strong religious migrant vote for no. And it was really, really interesting because people think, I, I presume, that the cities are always the most progressive pockets. Actually, we found something quite different in Australia when we did have that vote, and that was only quite recently. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. My guests, Stephen Diel and Letika Burke. Quick look at the headlines now. The battle has intensified for Lysychansk, Ukraine's last bastion in the strategic eastern province of Luhansk, with both Russia and Ukraine claiming to have control of the city. Israeli authorities have claimed to shot down three Hezbollah drones heading towards an Israeli gas rig in a disputed area of the Mediterranean. And Argentina's economic crisis has deepened following the resignation of the country's economic minister, with the government at its lowest approval rating since taking office and inflation running at 60%. Right, let's head to Croatia now. That's where Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delorni joins us from the, this weekend. Good morning, Guy. Good morning, Emma, and good morning all. I'm assuming you're having your beach towel laid out and you're ready for, for a day in the sun because you're by the sea, is that right? I am indeed. I'm sitting on the balcony of uh, the apartment I'm staying in, in Lovran, which is on the Kvarna coast in Croatia. So the nearest big city is Rijeka, which is about uh, 30 minutes up the road. But this is a, an extremely beautiful and spectacular part of the world, which is slightly less popular with tourists than the rest of Croatia, which is saying something. Tell us why. I mean, Croatia, during the pandemic at least, um, was one of the few places that tried to keep its borders open as much as it could. Um, I mean, anybody who's ever tried to get into Dubrovnik is going to find that literally it's hard to get into physically because there's so many people in there. Um, but tell us a little bit about what Croatia is doing with its tourism this year. Is it is it more than business as usual? Because business as usual is busy. Yeah, it's more than business as usual. So to give people a picture, in terms of GDP one-fifth at least of Croatia's GDP depends on tourism. So that was why they were so keen to keep things going during the pandemic. So they weren't locking down, they were trying to put in all sorts of protocols in place to reassure visitors that Croatia was safe, which which involved liberal amounts of, of, of hand sanitizer, really, mostly, if I'm frank. Uh, but this year, they're already reporting that numbers are breaking records and the records were set in 2019 which was the last year before the pandemic affected everything now you've got for example the the coastal town of Porec in in istria which is a very big tourist resort that's already reported its millionth visitor before the end of june uh, that, that that's uh, that's a record that's that's more than they've had in 2019 and I've been looking at all these the traffic reports for people crossing the borders into Croatia this weekend. And of course, there are queues of hours on the border between Slovenia and Croatia, because at the moment we're still not in the Schengen area in Croatia. So you still have these border checks. Uh, but yeah, it's breaking all records. Uh, everywhere's packed out. Prices are going up. There are shortages of staff, of course. And uh, the, the government is rubbing its hands. Indeed. I mean, how is Croatia bracing for itself? I mean, we've, been, we've spent the last 20 minutes um, here on Monday on Sunday bemoaning the fact that actually you, it's quite impossible to get a flight without 
tripping over something or or, or something wrong happening, um, and it is often due to a, 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 an essential lack of a, a lack of people to do the job. Well, it was, it was pointed out to me the other day. I was having a, a coffee in Rijeka when I was doing some reporting work there, and uh, my, my colleague Volian said, uh, "Look at this. They've got children serving the uh, serving the coffees." It wasn't quite true, but they were teenagers. And, and this is what, what it's coming to now, the, the increasingly desperate uh, employment agencies and individual establishments uh, are making quite lucrative office, offers to teenagers. So if you're in, in, in high school right at the moment and you're in um, anywhere touristy in Croatia, you could make an absolute packet. I mean, when I last looked, wages for waiters, and this is starting wages for waiters in the big resorts, were equivalent to about 25,000 euros a year, which, which is pretty good. Uh, by itself, and then you take into account tips. It's it's going to be a very lucrative time if you if you want to fill these jobs, and and that's always been the problem in Croatia that the the, the wages for the hospitality workers haven't really been attractive enough for, for local people to want to do them. So they've always been trying to get people in from abroad to do it. This year, I think it's the high school students who seem to be benefiting. And does this mean, perhaps, that we will be? Um, growing, raising a new generation of people who actually want to work in hospitality because it is a career which you can actually embrace and, and, and get through. It's not something that you do when you're about 18, 19 and then think that you hate it and go off and try and find yourself a so-called proper job. It's a very good question, Emma. I mean, the, there are good hospitality schools in this part of Europe, not just in Croatia, but in, in Serbia as well. And you'll find, in, for example, there are little quirks, like if you ever find yourself on a cruise ship, and I doubt you're the kind of person to indulge in, in cruise ship tourism, Emma, but if you, never if you know. were ever to find yourself on... <laughs> I, op- I operate a broad find... church. I can find though that Stephen DL has just literally sort of like put his hand out in a stop right there kind of way. We need to stop here. Hang on. Oh, I. Right. <laughs> okay, cruise ship confessions. What's going on, Stephen? Why no? I just cannot imagine any 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 holiday worse than being stuck on one of these huge floating cities with people that you probably would never choose to mix with anyway, um, sitting at the same table with them day after day after day, um, seeing one day a bit of one country, another day a bit of another country, getting no real fe- feel for the flavour and culture and history of the country. No, thank you very much. Latika, you just about to cr- are you are you a secret confu- cruise confessor? Well, I I shared all your views until. <laughs> Last year, when Cunard asked uh, me to go on the Queen Mary 2, and it was... That's a bit different. It was absolutely (laughs) fantastic. I'm not going to lie. It was absolutely fantastic. And I stunned myself by how much I loved it. And actually, my boyfriend is like, shall we go on another cruise trip? And I'm like, what has happened? Oh, my goodness. The world is upside down. What was so fantastic about it? Uh, Well, it was a wash with champagne. Okay. Absolutely a wash with champagne. Great facilities. And the thing I actually really liked, and and keep in mind, this was still at a time where there was lots of form filling if you wanted to disembark and test and things, was actually just getting off in Cherbourg, France, and wandering around for the day, coming back, and you didn't have to do all those unnecessary forms. And I could actually see the advantage of doing a Europe trip where you would just stop at various cities along the way, have a day or two, and not have to worry about flying liquids and gels, waiting for queues, getting to the airport. Maybe your your flight didn't go. There's no baggage handlers. There's no flight attendants. You know, I could actually see some sort of appeal in doing a Euro trip on a cruise ship. Okay, Grandma. Are we seeing, are we seeing the, the Delaunay's doing a big cruise anytime soon? 
And then you, you sound pretty I, I happy on your balcony. <laughs> yes, shall we say sentiment in our household is not in favour of, uh, of cruise ships. Great. Um, uh, that, so that, that, that ain't going to happen. What I would like to do at some point, though, is, is take advantage of the services of Jadrolinia. Now, they're the, the big Croatian ferry operator. And as people probably know, Croatia has actually thousands of islands. Uh, it, the, the, there's, there's an absolutely enormous archipelago off the Croatian coast. And Jadrolinia are the people who will get you from island to island. So I was just saying the other day, you know, what I'd really like to do is get some sort of, you know, season ticket or hop on, hop off with Jadrolinia and just go island hopping okay. for a bit. I know some people would want to do it on their own sailing boat or what have you, but I'd like somebody else to do the uh, the, the, the driving, please. Especially if Fatika's bringing 14 crates of champagne that she's stolen from the Queen Mary too. Um, let's have a look at what, what the airlines are talking about there. I mean, we've all decided that, well... I think three of us. I think Stephen, you're going to wave us off on the on the at the port while we head off on our cruise. But look, airlines. We've been talking about an awful lot about the fact that we are getting so many difficulties with airlines at the moment, um, trying to keep up with pent up demand. Um, but we have an issue in Slovenia. We do indeed. Slovenia's government is throwing money at airlines uh, to please, 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 please fly in and out of Ljubljana Airport. And this is because of a, of a perfect storm, really. Just before the pandemic, uh, Slovenia's national airline, Adria, went bust. So that was more than 50% of the flights which were going in and out of Ljubljana. And surprise, surprise, since the, well, the easing of the pandemic and the easing of travel restrictions, of all the airports in Europe, Ljubljana has re- rebounded the slowest. And this is just when it's reopened a, a new passenger terminal, all very swish and all the rest of it, which is run by Fraport, which is a big German operator of airports. Um, so they are rather desperate to get people in. They don't seem at the moment to be desperate enough to give deals, you know, or, or sweetened deals to, to people like Ryanair or Wizz Air. But what they are doing now is they're, they're punting up subsidies in, to the tune of millions to a sort of a, a group of airlines, which includes EasyJet, Lot, um, Air Serbia, Swiss Air, Brussels Airlines, to, to, to make more regular flights in and out of Ljubljana. And this is specifically to do with tourism as well, not just, just business or travel around Europe. They, they actually say it is vital for us in order for our tourism industry to uh, be healthy, that we have people able to come directly into Slovenia which is, of course, increasingly difficult if you don't have uh, those 50% of flights which disappeared with Adria. And this is an example, isn't it, Guy, of government stepping in to try to make, to try to get things moving again? Absolutely, and it's been a matter of great debate within Slovenia as to what those government moves should be. Should they be trying to facilitate the revival of a national airline? And if you look at the national airlines in this region, um, the last one standing is, uh, well, I mean, that's not quite true, actually. I mean, Croatia Airlines is, is still going, and there's, there's a very, very small Montenegrin airline which has been recombobulated. Uh, but, uh, you know, Air Serbia is the only sizable operator, really. Um, everything else goes, goes bust, whether it's in Bosnia, Macedonia. Um, they, don't t- they don't tend to do particularly well because all of these places are too small. Two million people. Can you have a, a national airline for a country of two million people? 
Um, so the government has decided that rather than doing that, it'd rather spread the money around a bit. And it could actually be much better value for money, frankly, because we all know how much money you can lose operating an airline. What's the quickest way to become a millionaire? Start off as a billionaire and start your own airline. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, uh, the last couple of weeks have seen um, sort of mixed fortunes for countries trying to gain uh, membership of the European Union. Uh, we saw uh, Ukraine give the green light. We saw um, Georgia being told to go away and and pull its socks up a little bit more. Um, But for those countries that have been trying to get into the European Union for, what, the best part of two decades, Guy, how are they doing? How are they faring? Well, they were very, very cheesed off after the latest uh, European Union uh, Council summit and particularly cheesed off after the EU Western Balkans summit, which was held as a sort of amuse-bouche to that, um, at which Albania and North Macedonia were told, no, we're not starting accession talks with you just yet. And Bosnia was told, no, you're not getting candidate status, even though we promised it to you in 2003, but we are going to give it to Ukraine and Moldova. Uh, So yes, I think there's been a little bit of um, loss of faith among those countries in the Western Balkans. Uh, But uh, excitingly and confusingly, and I have to be frank, I'm not exactly sure what's going on with this. We now have what sounds like a a 1970s movie starring Gene Hackman in The French Proposal, uh, which is something which is being hotly debated in North Macedonia this weekend, which could be a way of persuading neighbouring Bulgaria to lift its veto on North Macedonia and Albania starting their EU accession talks. So that's hotly debated. They are actually in talks today in North Macedonia. All these senior officials, Security Council, opposition, government, the lot of them talking about what this French proposal is, what it all means, and will Gene Hackman be involved in the signing of it? I can't wait. I mean, is this going to be something that could actually break the deadlock for North Macedonia and Bulgaria? Well, this is the hot talk. And, you know, certainly analysts a lot more serious than, than, than I am are saying that this, this looks like it may be the one that, that at least is the compromise that gets the talks going. And let's not forget, getting the talks going just means the opening up of a process that's probably likely to last for more than a decade. So in, in some ways, Bulgaria is being a bit silly here. It can wield its veto any time it likes. Why, why, why wield it now? It could uh, let North Macedonia get most of the way along the lines and, and then throw a spanner in the works. And, and you, you, so I think this, uh, this French proposal is a way of trying to persuade Bulgaria really, you know, we can make a concession or two uh, now, but you can save your serious shenanigans uh, for later on. And North Macedonia is coming under quite heavy manners to, to sign this proposal from the European Commission, from people like Charles Michel, the European Commission president, from Albania, Prime Minister Edi Rama there, urging North Macedonia to sign it so his country can also get their talks underway. And it's going to be quite difficult for them to resist without North Macedonia starting to look like the problem rather than Bulgaria. Guy Deloni from your balcony in Lovran in Croatia. Thank you so much for joining us. I think, Guy, you have to go and break up that dogfight that appears to have kicked off in the background. That was our Balkans correspondent, Guy Deloni in Lovran. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Heston's has, for more than 170 years, been facilitating a good night's rest, a quality that's prioritised by Heston's fifth-generation CEO, Jan Ride. He knows that sleep is key to finding balance and restoring our physical body. We are not human doings. We are human beings. We can have business goals or professional goals, but 
we need to make sure that we have that balance. For that, I mean, take care of our emotional well-being, take care of our health, take care of our spiritual well-being, because if we are going to be able to achieve higher levels of creations or abundance, it's so important that we are humble enough to understand we are spiritual beings in a physical body. Head to Hestons.com now to learn more about how a good night's rest helps the company's CEO Jan Ride and the world's creative and business leaders too. Hestons, be awake for the first time in your life. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and my panellists, Latika Burke and Stephen Deal. Welcome back. Um, right, where should we go next? Um, now, Stephen, you're itching to tell us about football, which is possibly, look, let me just give you a warning. It's not really something that, that sort of like, we, we don't, it's not a well-trodden patch at Monocle, but you're going to absolutely make us fall in love with the women's Euros. Is well, that right? Well, I hope so. This is, this is something new. And in fact, I can see a link in terms of society between we had the Gay Pride March yesterday and between women's football. The point being that just as people used to think, oh, you know, we don't like gay people, oh no, um, the idea was that women couldn't play football. Well, I'll tell you what, they can. Uh, and this is going to be the biggest women's football event ever, um, not just in terms of the team. There are 16 teams taking part um, at um, 10 venues in nine cities around the UK, two, two in London because the final will be at Wembley Stadium. The final is already sold out. That's 89,000 people who are going to attend that. They have sold, uh, in total, there are 700,000 tickets available for the games. 500,000 have already been sold. And it seems that there is a real sea change in society. People are saying, hey, actually, you know, um, women can play football too. Pele famously called football the beautiful game. Well, so why can't women play it as well? And in fact, if you watch, particularly at the higher level, um, you know, these women are really skillful. Are we going to get a moment, Latika, that we get, that we got in 2012 here in London when we had the uh, Olympic Games and us lovely old cynical British just went, this is going to be rubbish. And then it started and we thought, oh, hang on a minute, this is rather good. Uh, and then you couldn't get tickets for Love and the Money and I ended up going into a ballot for, for like <laughs> the, the third round of basketball because I was so desperate to go. It, are, we, are we going to see a sea change here or do we have a little bit more of a, of a wall to climb? Yeah, I think uh, Euros, uh, women's Euros is going to be really popular um, in Australia. It took everyone by surprise when they started broadcasting female soccer, as we call it there. Uh, and there was huge demand. So there was a really, really strong interest in watching women's football. So the market is absolutely there. I think where the disconnect might lie is between the kind of mainstream media take up and championing of it. I think we're definitely getting there, but I do think a little bit more to go. But I just think this is going to be one great summer event after event in London, uh, whether it's pride, whether it's football, whatever it is, everyone's coming and everyone's here and everyone's ready to have a good time. We are getting a mojo book. That's no doubt about it. Um, let's talk about a story that you've you've spotted in the papers about, um, you know, London blazes away, which is, you know, universally accepted. And I'm de- I mean, it's something to be wildly proud about. Um Veganism, however, has been incredibly trendy here in the UK, right across the world, actually. No worry, it's not just a British thing. It's a worldwide thing. 
Um, and it is, you know, it's accepted as being healthier and we all know the arguments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but is it actually making any money? Because there's an article in, I think it's in the Sunday Times, isn't it, that's suggesting that perhaps it's harder than you think to flog a ton of vegan burgers. Yeah, so this is a really interesting article in Sunday Times today. And Louise Eccles, the consumer affairs reporter, uh, writes about Honest Burgers. You guys go to Honest Burgers much? No. I've been once or twice. Once or twice. It's fine. Okay, so I, I, I actually really love burgers, but I stopped eating red meat a couple of years ago. And so um, one of my favourite meat replacements is Beyond Meat. In fact, I'm not a huge fan of, of meat replacement at all, but Beyond Meat absolutely is fantastic. And Honest Burgers does these Beyond Meats. And so they've obviously seen a huge take-up of those and the huge surge of interest in vegan food and thought, hey, let's open a vegan only Honest Burger. So they did it on Garrick Street in Covent Garden, London, um, but it hasn't gone down so well. They opened it in January and they're getting ready to close uh, because, well, sorry, reverting to meat, Not so it's not just going to be vegan only, saying there's just not enough interest uh, and foot traffic through their door to justify a vegan only burger joint. I wonder if it's a location. Not Garrick the fact Street. that it's the idea. I mean, in, in Covent Garden, it's, you know, you're not quite in Soho. You're not in out in the east. I wonder whether they've got their market wrong. But is there, is there a suggestion, actually, that there's a wider wider issue here, that, that the, the veganism is great, but it is not it is not profitable? Yeah, so maybe that, that could hold, Emma, except for they've also looked at another uh, vegan chain, and this was by Chloe. I don't know if you've ever been into a by Chloe. Uh-huh. And I'm not vegan, by the way. I'm just interested in food. Yeah. So there was one actually on Regent Street, kind of up near the BBC end, and it closed during the pandemic, never reopened its doors. Now, by Chloe came to London thinking it would also take it by storm, and it hasn't, and it's now closed. Uh, also, Veggie Pret, if you've been to a Veggie Pret. I have. I don't know what's wrong. We're now counting your pattern here, but go on. Yeah, there, <laughs> yeah, was, been a, there. <laughs> there was plans to expand and they have not expanded further than their current offerings. So there's still Veggie Prets around. They haven't completely failed, but they're not opening more. And what are they saying is the reason for this? The reason for the fact that there isn't an appetite for something, which one would arguably think is just part of... You know the, the restaurant world. Well, it's it's varied. There's some. Um, I mean, Neat Burger, for example, by Lewis Hamilton, still going great guns apparently in, in the Soho. Uh, but some of the quotes in this article attribute it to an Instagram popularity that's actually not uh, converting into real life foot traffic. I actually think it's a little bit different. Um, I just think the concept of vegan only is not really the is not going to work because. Lots of people aren't just vegan. You don't hang out with friends who are just vegan. You know, it's not like a way of life. Uh, There might be someone in the group who's eating plant-based, but someone in the group might love a roast, and the vegan doesn't have a problem with that person doing that. So you actually need a restaurant that caters for all these varied sort of food intakes. And I think just the idea of going into a vegan-only joint, well, I mean, it sounds as dour as... (laughs) As we might think. And I do eat a lot of vegan food. The other thing I think that's um, problematic for vegan food is a lot of vegan food's actually crap. 
It's processed. <laughs> it's full of sugar. It's full of weird uh, names on the ingredients label that you no doubt don't sound right. And so plant-based, <laughs> when it's a salad, is great. When you can see the plants, that's <laughs> wonderful. When you're getting these kind of fake sausage rolls and fake things and substitutes, you're kind of just wondering whether you should stick to eating, you know, a lettuce. <laughs> There's a motto that a friend of mine once said, never eat anything that's been made in a lab. Yeah, well, I mean, this is going to be really interesting because lab-grown meats kind of seen as the saviour for people who are vegan purely on ethical concerns or climate concerns, and they see lab-grown meat as the way forward. And I've actually got a lot of vegan friends who have invested in lab-grown meats, um, particularly for this reason. But exactly this, do you go and eat things that are, are made in the lab? I'm not sure. Do you eat much of st- much stuff that's been made in a lab, Stephen? What's the, what's the diet around the DL? Um, tends to be perhaps a little less meat heavy. We do still eat meat, um, quite quite a lot of fish. Um, But I could never go vegan because I'm a milkaholic. I just love drinking milk. What, pints of milk? Pints of milk. Doesn't it make Um, you feel ill? Oh, no. no. Oh, goodness. And the creamier, the better. I mean, you know, that's taking me back to my childhood. I mean, you have sturdy stomach Um, lining. (laughs) If I drank that much milk, I'd be ill. Stephen has just actually sort of portrayed a a sort of... There's a little lad here, isn't it, in this room now. (laughs) It's just like glass of milk before bedtime, glass of milk when we get up in the morning. Uh, well, a lot of milk on a cereal in the morning. That's, you know, my usual breakfast is a bowl of cereal Stephen, with lots of fruit. You, you referred to your age earlier, so may I ask, were you ever of a generation that had milk delivered in bottles? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yes. oh really? Oh, yeah. Bottles, and and we always bought, bought the gold top. I had, you had a little foil top. That for you for, for our international listeners, you're going to have to sort of like to explain <laughs> what gold top is. So, this is a yeah, cultural phenomenon dating the, back yeah, decades. Foil tops, foil tops. And if, they were, if it was gold, it was the real Jersey milk with any had about ooh, 10 centimetres of cream on the oh, top, wow. really good cream floats to the top. And then there was silver top, which was semi, I suppose, semi-skimmed. We didn't use the term back in the 60s. But um, um, and, and I, but I, I've always preferred the, the, the gold top. And um, I'm, sure, I'm assured that um, by a doctor that the, uh, the amount of fat you get from it actually is not that dangerous. So and, I mean, I'm um, from the generation. I'm from a generation where I started my childhood going to school and we had a quarter of a pint of milk that you had to drink despite the fact that it was lukewarm and disgusting every day at break. But as being a child of the Thatcher era, that got taken away from school. So it's a highly politicised politicized oh, issue. Oh, wow. I'm of a generation that drinks oat milk. Yeah, get over that. <laughs> <laughs> Latika Burke, Stephen G. Allen, Guy Deloney, thank you so much for joining us on the programme today. Thanks also to our editorial director, Tyler Brulo, for dining in for, dialing in from Murano. My thanks too to Rhys James and Marcus Hippie, our producers, and our studio manager, Nora Hall. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>